Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. Coming up on today's episode of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast, I am joined by a qualified clinical psychologist, Dr. Rachel Lee, and we are discussing changing degrees. We are talking about trauma and EMDR treatment for trauma, and we are also thinking about what the heck executive and non-executive roles are, which you might well hear banded about either in business or in psychology. Hope you find it so useful. Do stay tuned right to the end to hear Dr. Rachel's top tips for reducing burnout. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. This podcast that your side to be on your way to being qualified. It's the aspiring psychologist podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent. I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. So we are now underway with the application season for clinical psychology via the Clearinghouse. I also know that by the time you listen to this episode, that the applications for training as an educational psychologist will have opened. So they're due to open on Wednesday the 13th of September at midday. Deadline for references to be submitted needs to be Tuesday the 14th of November at 5 p.m., and the application season closes for educational psychology trainee wannabes um, on Wednesday, the 15th of November, 5pm. So um, it's a slightly um, shorter application season than for clinical psychology, but I am aware that's, that's fast coming up. So yeah, do get those dates in your diary if that's something that seems like it's going to be important to you in the near future. And that has just made me realise that I might well see if we can get somebody from the AEP um, to come and talk to us on the podcast. So um, I might well slip a little message into their inbox shortly so that we can learn a bit more about um, training as an educational psychologist. So today um, I am joined by a guest and we're talking about so many brilliant things. It's a qualified clinical psychologist and I so enjoyed our chat. Um, it's going to be a slightly longer episode. It's about 50 minutes long. Don't forget if you'd welcome any more advice or support um, during this time of your career, 
come and check out the Aspiring Psychologist community. And don't forget there's the Aspiring Psychologist membership available too. I will look forward to catching up with you on the other side. I hope you find this episode so useful, energising and helpful. I want to welcome our guest along today, Dr. Rachel Lee, who's a clinical psychologist, associate non-executive director. We'll hear a bit more about what that is later. And also um, is the owner of North Star Psychology, which is a specialist trauma provision. Um, is that right, Rachel? I've got that right. <laughs> Thank you, Marianne. Lovely it's great to, to be you. here. Brilliant. Thank you, Rachel. So one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on the podcast is because um, you'd actually started one particular course at your undergraduate degree and then after a year you'd then change to psychology and I think that's such an interesting conversation to have because sometimes people can feel you can get that kind of sunk cost fallacy that you think oh, I better keep on doing what I'm doing because what will people say or you know what will it look like could you tell us a little bit about what you were doing how and how you reached those decisions if that's okay Rachel absolutely so um I started at university doing engineering um it was a general engineering course and I was planning to specialize in chemical engineering in the fourth year and this had been a goal of mine for, for probably at that point about eight to nine years. You know, I'd always wanted to be an engineer. I'm somebody who really loves being outside and I like doing things and I like being active. Um, and from quite an early age, I decided that I wanted to go into engineering. I've always really liked the sciences. So, you know, I had to um, speak to the headmistress to choose the right, so, because I wanted to choose certain subjects and drop other subjects in order to pursue this career in engineering. Um, and then I got to university and um, I did enjoy doing the engineering, but I found that it wasn't quite what I was sort of looking for, I think, at that time. And I think what happens, you know, in those um, late years of adolescence is obviously our brain's still changing, isn't it? And we're changing and we meet new people. Um, and I had a few friends who were doing psychology and it just sounded really interesting. You know, I became quite fascinated by why people do what they do, how pe why people behave in certain ways. Um, and at the same time, I think I was finding that engineering was just a bit too rigid for me. I was looking for something that was maybe a bit more flexible, where I could have an opinion on things rather than just sort of solving really very difficult equations. Um, so, yes, I sort of completed the first year and then moved across to experimental psychology. Um, I never looked back, really. It's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, uh, yeah, I just find psychology fascinating. So perhaps I'm a bit of a nerd in that way. But even if I go for a run, I'll tend to listen to a psychology podcast, you know, having ideas. And um, yeah, it's just been a really fascinating and an interesting career. Lovely. Thank you. And you made it sound quite effortlessly there. You made it sound that you just went from engineering to, <laughs> to psychology. Um, and I guess some people might be listening to this thinking, oh, yeah, I am doing a degree that I've just I just don't feel like it's for me. What is the best way to go about if you want to change courses, Rachel? Yeah, so it's um, it's. It's interesting to think back on it, Marianne, because, um, you know, obviously it's the, it's quite a while ago, but I think what it was, was it was a slow 
a slow um, recognition that this wasn't really making me happy anymore. Maybe suppose now I think a lot about people's values. When I see my clients, I'm really focused on their values, what sort of person they want to be, what sort of life they want to have. And I suppose that wasn't really sort of fitting with my values. And perhaps my values had changed while I was at university. So I think it was a process of sort of finding out about the course that I did want to do, sort of thinking about the different options. So first of all, it was deciding this engineering isn't really what I want to do anymore. Um, and then looking at those different options, speaking to people who were doing the course, speaking to the tutors, um, finding out what was possible. Was it even possible to change? I was quite lucky because... Um, the engineering course was four years and the psychology course was three years. So in terms of, I mean, back in, in our time, we, we were funded, weren't we, to do to do our university courses. It was um, different to now where you pay tuition fees. But so, so those fees had already been agreed for the four years. So it was quite simple in terms of the sort of finances of it. Um, and yeah, just sort of had some conversations. I think if I remember, perhaps I had to... To have to write an essay, um, I think there was a little bit of an assessment process to check that I could move across to to that course. But, you know, I'm going back quite a few years now. Lovely. I think I was actually the second or third cohort of having to pay tuition fees. But but it was, I think, 3000 a year rather than the current sort right, of up yeah. to 9000 a year. So um, but I actually changed courses as well. But I changed courses within the first couple of weeks. So um, I was doing right. forensic science. Um, oh. But they'd sort of let me on with the, the proviso that I might find the chemistry tricky because I hadn't done chemistry A level. And then I... I started and for what I thought was going to be all forensic science was actually one hour a week of forensic science and the rest was chemistry and I just was completely swamped and was used to finding things relatively easy and then suddenly found myself at the bottom of the stack and I just thought I can't do this this is completely overwhelming it's not for me I don't even know why I've picked this course um and sort of then went back to psychology but my experiences of changing was that the university because like they sit they see you as a human hopefully but they also see you as money and once you're already there as a student they want to retain you as a student and so they will want yeah. to try and work with you to keep you as a student and so that they can keep you know one day have you as an alumni as well and so I guess to anyone listening to this thinking what will people say or will the university be awful to me and tell me off and say you should have picked better and you know it's not like that and actually I found that I then had two sets of friends throughout my cohort because I also had my forensic science psychology science friends that I'd met for a couple of weeks and then you know it was really nice it kind of enriched and added to my experience rather rather than detracted from it. Yeah, it was it was a little bit similar for me because um, if you like, in moving to psychology, I went into the year below the year that I'd started off in. So I'd got friends who were in my original year and then um, new friends in the in the year um, below that year. And, and also, Marianne, I also found the university to be really supportive because I think they want they want their students to be happy, don't they? They want them to do courses that they will succeed in. Um, so they were, yeah, it, they um, were very supportive in terms of that move. 
Yeah, and actually, as I reflect upon that now, one of my very closest friends on my cohort, there was four of us that were studying psychology that were thick as thieves. Um, she had originally done sociology the year before and had decided to change. So she had exactly what you had. She had her her older peers who were, who were her own age. Um, and then she had um, actually everyone, all of my friends were a year older than me. They'd all taken either a gap year or changed courses. But um, yeah, so she had that experience of kind of still doing some of the the year two stuff whilst we were doing year one stuff um and it worked really well and then we <laughs> we had more friends to play with you know it was it was quite good it was quite good <laughs> so how did you what happened next so once you graduated let's skip a little bit of your education did you already know you wanted to be a clinical psychologist at that stage um I think I, I was certainly really interested in um in mental health um, that was sort of my favorite module that we'd done on the universe uh, on the course at university but I actually left um, and I moved back to Leeds and I had a job as a research assistant in a, a rheumatology and rehabilitation research unit so it's doing sort of quite mathematical research sort of looking at outcome measures and how we analyze data and things which perhaps sounds quite dull but it was a fantastic job because it had so much travel involved so I was part of a European study and we went to Australia and I went to Chicago and I went to um, Copenhagen and different places like that so, so that was really interesting and then, then I think it was in doing that that I started to think actually I really do want to be a clinical psychologist and I applied for a research job down at the Institute of, Psychology, of Psychiatry um, at King's College in London and um, that was working in the eating disorders research unit um, so I moved down there and that was really with a view to then sort of applying for clinical psychology courses. And then you ended up getting on in London is that right? Yeah yeah so um, the first year I wasn't successful um, and had a bit of a dilemma as to whether to continue or not um, and then I was successful in the second year and uh, I was really pleased to get on the course. Brilliant. And, you know, I think sometimes it's it's not uncommon for people to have that sort of soul searching, you know, is this for me? You know, I've been told, no, perhaps they know something about me that I don't know. Perhaps this isn't the career for me, you know. And I think in the days that that um, that you were applying, certainly even when I was applying, you'd get like a little paper form of feedback about why why you were not being shortlisted for interview. Um, and I, I, I kind of wish they'd do that more now because it just being told no when you've spent months on a form, you know, that's really hard, you know, because actually in terms of knowing where to start next year, I was told I needed to have more varied clinical experience. Um, so initially more varied clinical experience more relevant experience and another another box and then the next year I applied I think it just said um, more varied clinical experience so then I thought right well I'm going to get a job in a different clinical population then um, and so I did I ended up working in a, a child and adolescent secure unit um, but these days it's it just can feel like I don't know why I've been turned down and so I don't know what to do that's different and that's really hard because you need constructive feedback don't we and I remember that, Marianne, from um, the year when I wasn't successful, that actually at that point, I don't know if it's changed, but at that point, they didn't offer any feedback whatsoever. 
um, in terms of not getting on. And it's really difficult to, to know where you need to sort of make some changes and adjustments. Um, and I think for me, in terms of the soul searching about whether I wanted to do it, it wasn't necessarily that that I felt that maybe I wasn't the right person for it. It was more that actually I think I was about sort of, would have been, let's see, I've been about 20, 26 and I was living in a shared house um, with other people who sort of had jobs in the city, you know, on this sort of clear trajectory um, and doing very well, I suppose, financially. And I was looking at sort of going onto a three year course that that was going to, you know, obviously take some time before I was going to um, have a full time job and. And, yeah, it was just it was more sort of starting to to plan that out and to think about how does this fit with other things that I might want to do in my life. Um, but like I say, I'm really pleased that I stuck with it and um, it's been the best decision I've ever made. Um, I couldn't be happier with the career that I've chosen. So, yeah, it's it's worth sort of continuing, isn't it? You have to sort of just dig in and keep going and sort of hold on to your values, to what's important to you so that you can keep going through those sort of ups and downs. But I do agree with you. So just coming back to that point, I do agree with you that it'd be really helpful to give people feedback. And for me, it doesn't quite fit with us. So it doesn't quite fit with us being psychologists because, you know, we know that for people to, um, you know, to learn, we, we need to we need some feedback, don't we? We need some feedback from our environment, from the people around us. If we want to change, um, then we need to sort of have some information about what's not working you know, what, what, why haven't I got on the course this time? Like you're saying, oh, perhaps I need some more clinical experience or perhaps I need some more research experience or maybe it's the way that I'd describe things in my form. Um, just really helpful to get a little bit of feedback. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And actually, I realised, I've just remembered that another point in the first application I did was that academic skills need strengthening. So at that point, I started a master's, you know, so you can immediately take action to make it different next year but it feels like everybody's just having a shot in the dark like I don't know why I wasn't shortlisted I don't know what to change but yeah it's whether we can think about yeah, trying yeah. to drip feed anything in systemically so I had a conversation recently with somebody as part of the membership that's done a lot of the stuff for contextual admissions um, which has come about over the last few years which is thinking about whether someone has been in the care population at any point and um, whether the whether they had free school meals, those sort of things, so that we're really looking at the demographics. And so the way it was explained to me um, was that, um, you may know this already, Rachel, but the way it was explained to me was that if they're trying to decide between offering somebody a, a, an interview or a place and they score the same, then the person with the highest contextual admission score will then be offered that to to kind of try to make it as as fair and equitable as possible. So that's my understanding of how those um, that information is used. So in case people are feeling like oh, I don't really want to fill in that information, it can be useful for you to be as honest as you feel comfortable to be. So um, I certainly found that very interesting. I think it's it's really interesting, and incredibly valuable, isn't it? Because. <clears throat> No, just because pe people with those contextual factors have had many more hurdles to overcome. And, um, you know, it's it's great to see that being taken into account. And, and we need to widen, don't we? We need to widen um, 
broaden the types of people who are working in psychology. Um, you know, for, we need people from different backgrounds and with different life experiences and lived experiences um, to help us sort of grow the profession and be able to work with people in different ways, um, reflecting the diversity of our service users. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, I was reflecting on what you were saying about you loving your job and loving your career. And, um, yeah, I absolutely feel the same way myself. And, you know, when you meet somebody that's even considering a psychology career, like it, I don't know, I just, I feel like they're just lit up in a different way and you know if we can get more and more people feeling that way about their profession about their work about the work they do so we're speaking as I'm sort of fresh back from Galway I got back from Galway doing a keynote speech for the Irish Psychological Society um, over the weekend and I was standing on that stage just thinking gosh you know this is amazing I am here talking to all these aspiring psychologists because I did a psychology degree and you know that I, I couldn't be here doing this job and connecting with people as I was on the stage, but also all of the clients we work with. And we work in quite similar areas. So I work in trauma as well. But it's the biggest privilege, you know, helping someone, bearing witness to yeah. some of the most difficult times of their lives, the real raw pain and helping them through that and then out the other side to be able to have a different experience of life. I just it's never lost on me. It's never not humbling. It's it's an incredible, an incredible role that we do. And it's all because we did psychology at uni. Yeah, absolutely, Marianne. Um, I had the most incredible week last week and a couple of clients that I've been working with for a while was sort of um, came to the end of their therapy and, you know, the life changes, just absolutely incredible. Um, one of my clients in particular, who I've been seeing online, is really interested. I wish I'd sort of had, you know, um, to compare how how sort of how how she presented at the start of therapy and how she presented at the end. You know, we sort of reflected on this, just this sense of lightness. You know, the joy that was coming out of her. So so um, she just looked so radiant. You know, this was the end of therapy. She looked radiant. She'd um, made some big decisions about her job. She was make. She'd got some big plans for the next year. You know, at the start of therapy, she was really struggling with these really um, very distressing experiences that she'd had in her life. Some in childhood, a couple in adulthood that were really significant and had really had had incredible consequences for her. Um, and you know, to do that work, it's been so painful at times. But she's really, com she really committed to it. And then to see her sort of beaming um, in the final couple of sessions, and you know, telling me about all these changes that she's made, it, it was incredible. So yes, it, it it feels like the best job in the world, doesn't it? When you're helping somebody really heal and recover from those awful life experiences, so that they can thrive and flourish and live the life that 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 they want to live, because. I always think sort of living with trauma symptoms, it's like you're going through life with this really heavy backpack on and sort of a good trauma therapy, when it's successful, it's like taking that backpack off, isn't it? And suddenly, you know, life feels lighter. You can see it in people, in how they carry themselves, in how they, their facial expressions, but also in the decisions and choices that they make. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I love the work. 
Absolutely. One client described it to me as if literally, you know, when you can have quite rapid, sudden shifts sometimes with EMDR, like within a session. And a client said to me, well, I feel like I've been carrying around some really heavy shopping bags for seven years. I've just put them down for the first time. And it's like, gosh, that is so powerful, so powerful. But like you say, you you just see the changes in people's faces, the way they hold their facial expressions, the, you know, even the way that their face might be lined or, you know, furrowed or creased. And they look lighter, they look happier, they're just they're easier to be around. I think they they attract different people to them as well because they're not giving out those keep away messages. And I don't know whether you find this, but um with all of the client work that I do, I'll be like, okay, let's drop our shoulders, let's take a breath. And when my clients start to begin to get better, they're like, do you know what happened? I was in an office with my colleague and I started to realize what they needed. So I said, all right, just drop your shoulders, just take a breath, just take a moment. And they start to teach the skills that I've taught the, to them because they start to notice distress in others now that they're able to notice distress in themselves. And I think it's the biggest, the biggest gift because it makes you realize well, you're going to be okay because you've internalized these changes. You're going to be all right because it's not, you know, I think sometimes clients have come to me for treatment because they've like, well, what I've done with this type of approach before hasn't worked. I'm looking for something that almost changes me on a cellular level so that I just, I'm, I've, I've dealt with it. I've done and I can move forward. And I think certainly with the MDR and the mixture of kind of compassion focused therapy, that's what we do. You know, I'm sort of hoping with people, I hope I never see you again in the nicest possible way, because I hope that you begin to be your own therapist. And obviously if you need me, I'm here, but you know, that's my hope for people. And I'm confident it's yours too, Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is something that's absolutely fascinating about EMDR, isn't it? It's somehow it reaches the parts that I think other therapies often aren't able to reach. Um, and I think that's how I became so interested in it. Um, after I'd done my training in EMDR, um, I used it with somebody that I'd been doing some trauma focused CBT with, and we'd um, addressed the trauma symptoms she wasn't having any flashbacks or nightmares anymore but she was still struggling um, to do some of the things she wanted to do and I'd been um, you know week after week setting up behavioral experiments with her trying to help her with this and we just couldn't get any shift she was feeling scared as she walked down down a road and then having learned EMDR um, you know came back and said, do you want to try this should we just see if there's anything that's unresolved about that trauma memory so we did one processing session um, and everything just shifted after that point. I, I seem to remember that, um, yeah, the next session she came back, she'd been able to do the stuff she'd not been able to do, you know, the stuff I've been trying to chip away at for about six sessions, I think. And, um, yeah, changed her job, looked completely different. Um, it, it was just fascinating. So that was my first experience of using EMDR. Um, so you can imagine I was really curious um, and just wanted to use it more and more. And now it's the majority of the work that I do. And last week I was in London. Well, not last week, the week before in London to do the consultants in training training. 
um and yeah just love learning learning about it so um yeah it's it's a really powerful therapy and i think it can take people a bit by surprise so last week you know client came back and i was i'd sort of said oh how did you feel you know across the week you know we'd done some work on a on a different memory the week before and she said gosh you know it's just been remarkable that memory's been bothering me for 40 years and we'd done th- about 30 minutes of processing on it and she said it's just not bothering me anymore and she'd actually been trying to test it out whether it did still um cause a problem so I think it's, yeah, it's just fascinating and great to see those shifts and feel like you can really help that person's brain to to do the healing it's not been able to do. Because I think that's the other thing I really love about EMDR um, is the way that as therapists, we sit back and we let the person's brain sort of go down the avenues and the and the routes that it needs to go to to find that information that's going to help healing. Um, I, I think that's really valuable. It really is, and um, I think when I realised we've sort of fallen into a cardinal psychology sin and we've not explained (laughs) what EMDR is so we should probably because if people listen to this all over the world sometimes and say English might not be their first language as well so I'm imagining them going EMD what so EMDR if we just explain is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing very catchy name EMDR and it was developed by a lady called Shapiro who has since passed away could you tell us in a brief sort of nutshell what EMDR is Rachel? Yeah sure so EMDR is a therapy that was developed for people with post-traumatic stress disorder and then since has been expanded to help people with lots of different difficulties um, so we can use it to help people with pain we can use it to help people with addictions or um, urges to engage in certain behaviors we can use it with uh, low self-esteem so when people have got um, negative self-beliefs things like i'm not good enough or um, we can use it um, with with all sorts of different difficulties anxiety as well so there's a particular flash forward protocol that can be really helpful when people are sort of um, have got a lot of anticipatory anxiety so it's based it's a therapy that is it's a stru- very structured therapy um, although of course we want to use it in a flexible and creative way with our clients and it has a number of phases um, i guess broadly it works on the the past the present and the future so we're helping people with their past memories with their current triggers and we're helping people to plan and prepare and cope with sort of future challenging situations and it's based on the adaptive information processing model which in a nutshell says that we all have a have a capacity to heal so just as much as our physical um in terms of physical health we can make a physical recovery the body knows how to heal a physical wound um so if you cut your arm um you know it, it unless there's sort of some dirt or some sort of something else in there um, your body will heal naturally so if there is some grit you know if you've fallen off your bike I know you had a, a fall on your on your bike Marianne and um, I'm sure we've all sort of had that experience and you get some grit in in a cut then you need to clean it don't you? you need to remove the grit to clean it and then the body heals itself 
And um, EMDR is based on an idea that much as with physical difficulties, the body will heal itself. We can also heal from um, psychological difficulties or from disturbing events that have happened in our life and that are continuing to impact on us in the present. So, and the way that we do that is by um, creating the conditions to help that person access the memories of these difficult times whilst also being very mindful that they're in the present and then to help the brain to do this processing that it's not been able to do before so i always think that with emdr it's i always think you know the brain's a little bit like a factory and it turns an experience into a stable long-term memory but when we have very disturbing things happen to us i think particularly things where we feel experiences where we feel helpless or powerless or in sort of really intense threat um then that that factory shuts down and instead of the experience being turned into a memory it's stored in its sort of raw form and and what's fascinating is that when you look at neuroimaging studies we can actually see that before and after emdr the memory is is in a different place so the, the neuroimaging studies tell us that the memory is in the limbic system which is the part of the brain that's responsible for um, processing threat and emotions and afterwards the memory is in the neocortex which is the part of the brain where we do all our complex thinking our reasoning um, our decision making so essentially i think what happens is in those disturbing experiences we switch into survival mode and that's exactly what we want our brains to tell us to do you know the survival mode is there for a reason to help us to to survive, to exist, to, to get through this difficult situation. So I think it's because we're in that survival mode that that processing isn't happening. Now, of course, sometimes the processing happens after the experience, but sometimes it doesn't or it doesn't happen in, in its it fully. So, so what EMDR does it, is it provides an opportunity for the brain to do the healing that it's not been able to do at the time. Um, and we can use it with, you know, sort of, very disturbing memories. So, you know, what you might think of as sort of classic trauma, let's say an accident or an assault, something like that. And we can also use it with um, experiences that are maybe a bit lower on that sort of disturbance scale, but have still had a significant impact on us. So I'm thinking about, you know, experiences of maybe being humiliated or, or bullied or, um, you know, just having, having a, a difficult time. Um, at times in our lives that might have led us to form some unhelpful conclusions about ourselves um, that, that continue to bother us, or that might still mean that when we're in certain situations, our emotions get triggered in a way that they, sorry, and we feel the feelings that we felt back at the time. So sometimes, you know, whereas in, um, I think in PTSD, you know, it's very obvious that that, that, per, that situation's triggering that sort of trauma response, Sometimes what can happen is that people just feel the feelings that they've had earlier in their life. And I think that can be really confusing because, um, you know, there's no, sometimes it might be hard to make that link. But when we look into it, um, when we're doing our sort of history taking and we're talking to people about their experiences, we can often make that link. And, and I think that can be one of the really powerful things in therapy is to be able to link current experiences to, to past experiences and what's happened in that person's life. It's a way of making sense of it, isn't it? And often I think, you know, no wonder you feel that way in this situation, because actually that's very similar to this thing that happened to you in the past. But, so where EMDR comes in is we can then go into the past and 
process any parts of that experience that are sort of carrying that emotional charge. Um, and so that sort of can then make things feel really different. And I think what's fascinating about EMDR is when you've processed the memory, people will say it just feels so different now. It's like, um, you know, so normally before EMDR, people are bringing that memory to mind. They can feel it in their bodies. There's an emotional charge. And afterwards, it's like all their other memories. Of course, if it's an upsetting experience, it will still feel like a sad memory, but the person's not feeling it sort of in their body. And that paves the way for them to be able to respond differently in the present. Sorry, I didn't give you the sort of nutshell answer. It's quite hard to, um, to, to bring it down. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. And actually, you raised a really important point there that actually... We don't need to be hierarchical about the trauma. It doesn't need to feel like it's bad enough. And it was making me think that actually I had EMDR for something which to lots of people might have felt like nothing. So um, when my little boy, my second child, so anyone with two children will relate to this, I wanted to make sure that I was still taking loads of photos and loads of videos of the second child. And I am the second child myself. So, you know, there's probably about, about two photos of me <laughs> for about the first three years of my life. So I thought, <laughs> I'm not going to have that happen. So I made sure that I bought a new phone. So I, I, my little boy was born just after my birthday, a few days after my birthday. So for my birthday, I asked for a brand new iPhone so I could make sure there was plenty of room on there for taking loads of photos and loads of videos of the two of them together, of me, of him, of, you know, just of his earliest moments. And because it was a brand new phone, I thought it's going to be absolutely fine. So I remember sitting on my bed probably a couple of months into his birth um, and it flashed up that my eye cloud memory was full did I want to buy some additional storage and I looked at it and it said it was going to be 79p a month and I thought you know what it's a brand new phone it's going to be fine um and really because I'm on maternity leave I probably could do with saving some money so I remember putting it down on my bed and thinking no I'm not going to do that what I couldn't have known was that my phone would then corrupt a short time after that and I lost basically everything on my phone um, and so I'd lost all of those early early memories and I found it really really hard to forgive myself and it was really distressing me but it sounds silly but it, it made me feel like I was a terrible mother um, and so I had to kind of work through that and even now as I talk about that it makes me feel a bit sad but I can do it in a way that I've been able to just get on with my life and just think, you know what, you didn't know. You know, the technology let you down. Um, it should have worked. It should have been fine. It wasn't your fault. You don't love your child any less. You tried. You know, it is what it is. And and I was able to then get photos from other people that had taken photos of him as well. So, you know, it, it just makes it lay flat and it helps me assimilate that into your life. Yeah, and I think that's a really great point, Marianne, and, you know, really connected with that experience there as, as a mum, just so awful. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's a great example of the, the whole variety of different um, experiences that we could use EM, EMDR for. And, and, and also you highlighted that it helps you to assimilate the information, and that's how I think about EMDR as well, that, you know, if you, ex if you think about all your different experiences in life as like dots on a page and also all your knowledge, um, different um, perspectives and ideas and um, learnings that you've had in life as, as dots on a page. And I think what happens with these kind of disturbing memories 
is that they're not connected to all to as many um, dots as would be helpful. And EMDR helps to create some new connections. So, um, you know, I guess there you would have had that knowledge that you're a good mom and that sort of and some knowledge that phones sometimes corrupt and phones that we can't predict everything that's going and some knowledge that we can't predict everything. And then you've got this memory, haven't you, of like, oh, my gosh, you know, I've lost all my photographs and those things weren't connecting. So I imagine your EMDR helped those connections to 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 be created. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly that. Exactly that. And, you know, it's fine. It's all right. It's not ideal. You know, if I could go back and choose to, to, to either have not have the phone corrupt or to have the, uh, you know, just to pay 79p a month, I would have done that. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty vision, as they say. So let's just have a little bit of a think before we finish about what a non-executive director is and why <laughs> they're important. Oh, great. So this is a really new role for me, um, Marianne. And um it's it kind of came a little bit out of the blue if I, if i'm honest about it it's not something that i really um had thought about doing before or really even i guess sort of um, understood too much about um but i was approached about this role and the more that i looked into it the more that i thought it sounded really interesting and also it came at just the right time for me so i left the nhs um sort of october november time last year um, and then I've been very focused on developing my um, psychology service, my trauma service. But I was also very, it, I found it really hard to leave the NHS. You know, I've always sort of held the NHS sort of close in my heart, I think. You know, I've worked, I'd worked there for sort of over 20 years and I always saw myself as somebody who worked in the NHS. I've never intended to leave, but, but you know, it was the right, um, it was the right, decision to make and I've been really happy since I left but I think I still felt that I wanted to, to do something to contribute uh, maybe to the NHS or to another organisation in some way so I'd, whilst um, over the last few months I'd been sorry so maybe after leaving the NHS you know I did some work with a couple of charities because I felt like you know what still wanted to, to give back if you like um, so an, an associate sorry a non-executive director sits on the board of an organisation. So I'm an associate non-executive director with a large um, NHS trust. Um, and so we sit we sit in, on the board. Um, so you've got the executive directors. These are the people who are paid by the organisation. So, for example, you've got obviously chief, chief executive, but also, you know, director of, um, well, they're called people officers now, but essentially what was the director of human resources and you have a strategy director and so on. So different directors. And then the non-exec directors are people from outside of the organisation. So these are people who are on the board to offer, I suppose, a um, an objective point of view and to come with some curiosity and to ask some questions in the board meetings to check that things have maybe been looked at from different angles um, to be curious about what's happening in the organization so as i see it we're as, as non-executive directors we're there to really support the the board to um, help the organization to deliver the best service that it can um, to do that in the sort of safest way possible um, and, and and I suppose that's by sort of sometimes being a bit of a critical friend. Um, 
My role as an associate non-executive director, so this is a new role um, within the trust. Um, they've not had an associate non-executive director before. And there is a big, um, there's been a big recruitment drive across the NHS to recruit associate non-executive directors. So these are new roles and might be interested to, interesting to some of your listeners because um, the trust that I'm doing this in, they were really interest, keen to have a clinician on their board um, recognising that this is a mental health trust and that it would be helpful to have a perspective, a clinician's perspective. So I found this very interesting because having worked in the trust for 15 years, um, having sort of um, led services and supervised colleagues and obviously seen a lot of service users as well, I felt that I was in a good position to perhaps be an advocate for um, staff members as well as for service users and um, I suppose as well since I've left the NHS then growing my own business gives me that other perspective as well on sort of strategy and um, you know sort of what's important in terms of of, of growing a business and um, you know being, being more aware of sort of how things work in the corporate world I suppose um, is what I'm thinking there. So the associate non-executive director role I see as a little bit like an apprenticeship to becoming a non-executive director so the NHS has created these roles so that people who've not had experience of being a non-executive director can move into those positions so this is a two-year post um, it is a paid post um, we were talking earlier weren't we about how it's a bit similar to being a school governor um, but the benefit here is that you are being paid um, it's it's a role that I do sort of two to three days a month um, so we have a board meeting once a month that's a full day um, and it's really very interesting you know to to go back into an organization at such a different level to understand all the different sort of challenges and opportunities within the organization to see the sort of decisions that are being made um, to work with a whole um, a different array of people as well is really fascinating um, and so we have the board meeting and then we have the non-executive directors meetings. And then I'm just in the process of joining a couple of committees as well. Um, so I'm going to be on the collaborative co committee. But I'm also sort of spending some time going to each of the different committees in the trust so that I can really understand how everything works. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so far I've found it very, very interesting Um and it's been, yeah, it's been very, very the team's been very welcoming. So um, it, it, it feels very different to, to doing the clinical work. And I think that's something for me is thinking about, you know, you're in quite, you need to be in quite a different mindset when you go into, into the board meeting or rather to sort of recognise that you're not going in as a psychologist, you're going in as a associate non-executive director although of course you know I'm there to be a psychologist as well so so it's sort of yeah I think I'm finding my way really to think about how those two things come together. Yeah and I think it sounds like such fascinating work but also is further demonstrating the real flexibility and diversity of our career and where it can take us and that you know, you never know when something really energizing and really exciting might crop up for you that, you know, that you can get involved with and that you continue to grow, you continue to learn, you continue to change. And I think it's just wonderful. You know, I think if any, if anyone's listening to this, feeling like they're stagnating in their career, 
there's you know there's opportunities everywhere and you know like like you said I did do school governance for a couple of years and I learned so much there about strategy mm. about being strategic about how to use constructive feedback and criticism you know there's so many ways that we can liven up our skills and help us to just feel differently but also be useful and and you know beneficial to services so thank you that's really interesting because I think even when I was working as an assistant and when I was working as qualified I didn't really get what directors did so I think that's really useful to have a little bit of a a fly on the wall um, insight into that so thank you just before we finish Rachel could you give our listeners any advice for trying to reduce burnout on their their journey um, in aspiring psychology world yeah absolutely so I think it's natural to feel some feelings of burnout at different times in our careers and one of the things that I've found really helpful um, and that I would encourage them to do is to really develop the, another, the that other part of themselves that's that's not the psychologist, if you like. So it, it takes me back to a time when I was working in a, an HS service and I think struggling a bit and I got really into rock climbing, um, into, you know, going to, there's a great climbing, indoor climbing wall in Leeds and I was living in central Leeds at the time and I would go to this climbing wall most nights after work um, I loved it. I loved sort of solving the problems and the adrenaline of it. And that really created a brilliant way for me to switch off. If you think about mindfulness, it's really about sort of being present, isn't it? So when you're on the climbing wall, you know, you have to be present or you're probably going to fall off or you're not going to manage to, to, to make the next move or to solve the problem. But also it's about finding something that really fits with your values, I think. So thinking, yeah, you know, so that so that work doesn't become everything that you're doing. And I think it can be easy for, for, for that to happen when we're, you know, really committed. And of course, most healthcare professionals are. Aren't we? we really want to do a good job and we'll be willing often to put in those extra hours and making some time to do some stuff that, that sort of is important to you. And I would say it also gives you that um, mental break from psychology. So I think, you know, doing something that feels really different, fits with your um values uh, you know maybe stretching yourself a little bit so something where you can really get absorbed in that activity get engaged in it sort of um be, be taking yourself down another path so that's one thing and then the other thing that that I do now I've not it's not so easy to go climbing um with two children and um you know all their activities you know spend a lot of time sort of driving around in cars and sitting in, in car parks but um but the other thing that I do now is I just try and get into nature as much as I can and I find that that's really soothing so um, getting out for a run or a walk, you know, going to beautiful places um, and just sort of really enjoying enjoying that time. So, so yeah, they'd be my, my two um, go-to sort of self-care strategies, I suppose. Such brilliant advice and thank you so much. And thank you for spending your time um, talking to us about such important areas. So I've really taken so much from our conversation and I know our listeners will as well. So how can our listeners learn more about you and connect with you and learn more about your work if they want to, Rachel? Where's the best place to find you? Um, so I'm on all the usual social media platforms. Um, I've got a Twitter feed, which is Dr. Rachel Lee. Um, 
on Instagram, I'm North Star Psychology, on LinkedIn, I'll be Dr. Rachel Lee, and um, I have a website, northstarpsychology.co.uk. Um, I love connecting with other psychologists. It's just great to share psychological ideas and knowledge um, and, and hear other people's perspectives. A, a recent paper that we've published, which is all about using photographs in, in therapy, and I think this might be interesting to your listeners, because this is an area that, that I got really um, excited about when I sat on a steering committee for a photo voice research project and the participants who'd taken part in this um, sorry the people who'd taken part in this research so the so the photo voice research uses photographs to help people discuss um, things that are important to them this research was looking at um, barriers to, to physic, improving physical health for people with severe mental illness and what the participants had done each week they would be given a theme and they'd go and take some photographs and they'd bring them back and talk about this as a, in, a, in the focus group the purpose of that research was to pull out the themes but what we found out was that the participants actually really loved taking the photographs and they really loved sharing photographs. And that really struck a chord with me as someone who also likes to share photographs as a, as a means of communication, if you like. And so, yeah, we've just published this paper, which was Dr. Jamie Barrow's um, doctoral thesis research. Um, I was a co-supervisor together with um, Dr. Kira Masterson, who's the director of the Leeds Clinical Psychology course. Um, and so, yeah, we were looking at people's experience of using and sharing photographs in a dialectical behaviour therapy informed group. So um, the link to that is on my Twitter feed if, if anybody's interested. Um, but, but just trying to share these ideas that, you know, we can use photographs in therapy, in mental health interventions. You know, people are taking photographs anyway, aren't they? People are sharing photographs with people all the time on WhatsApp. So let's see if we can bring this into, into therapy. Um, and there's lots of different ways to do that. So within our paper, we looked at the themes um, on the pros and cons of doing that. That sounds so interesting. And it's it's just part of being a modern human you know when I'm doing personal training sessions with my personal trainer or I'm you know with a friend or something you often reach for your phone don't you to demonstrate and show people something and I think it's time that was in therapy it's not something that I've ever really thought about but really really important stuff so um if you share the link with me I'll put that in the show notes as well and obviously I'll link to all your socials in show notes as well but I love that you're also demonstrating that you can still become involved in research even when you're qualified even when you're in private practice as well so thank you for highlighting that to us and um, it's such a such a pleasure to speak with you um and yeah wishing you well with the rest of your day and the rest of the roles that you're that you're engaged in at the moment thank you marianne it's been a pleasure to speak to you oh what an absolute pleasure to speak with dr rachel i hope you found that as as helpful as i did um when i was chatting with her live um off camera i did ask so do they give you get a buffet do you get some lunch when you do your um executive um and non-executive meetings no no is the answer and you do know that i do love a buffet so um yes i um when i was in galway recently for my um keynote speech for the irish psychological society um, I was just dashing off after the meeting and the people that had um, booked me who were lovely um, as I was leaving they were eating some fruit and they were like can we get you anything can we get you anything 
do you want a banana? We've got lots of bananas. And I was like, no, I'm okay, thank you. I'm not a banana fan. Um, one of the few fruits I don't really eat. I can manage it with with some ice cream um, or some custard. But yeah, I couldn't I couldn't eat a whole banana by itself. Um, so yeah, you learn random bits of information about me in this podcast. That's one. Um, anyway, I hope you found it so useful. Um, if you've got any ideas for future podcast episodes, don't be a stranger. Do let me know. Come and hang out. Come and connect with me on socials. I am Dr. Marianne Trent everywhere. If you're watching this on YouTube, please do like, subscribe and comment. Do all those things. Share your favourite episodes with your friends on socials. And I'll look forward to catching up with you for our next episode of the podcast, which will be along from 6am on Monday. And yeah, be kind to yourselves. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book, as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.